All right, thank you, Greg. Appreciate that. So, hey, in the late 1800s, doctors and scientists believed in something called spontaneous generation. And the idea was that living organisms just kind of popped up out of nowhere or uh, just appeared from non-living matter. And in fact, spontaneous generation was the best explanation of its day for the spread of disease. And then a man by the name of Louis Pasteur came along and he said, no, that is not the way disease is spread at all. He said, there are invisible organisms, microorganisms, though he did not call them that. He said that you cannot see with the naked eye and these are responsible for carrying diseases. These invisible organisms, again, at least to the naked eye, are responsible for spreading disease and death throughout our world. And as this new germ theory for disease began to spread, some doctors actually took notice. They began to wash their hands. They began to quarantine sick people from one another. But there were many, many doctors in the medical community who found this explanation impossible to believe. And their logic was essentially this. Do you mean to tell me that there is something I cannot see that impacts all of uh, what I can see in this world? Well, today, right, uh, this germ theory is not just a theory. I mean, it's an assumption, isn't it? I mean, we all believe in germs, even though some of us in the room may not have actually even ever seen one. Well, friends, the Bible is very clear that when it comes to our world that there is another invisible world that impacts all that we see in ways that are dark and twisted and tragic. And that invisible world isn't just random. We're told that that invisible world has a leader who Jesus called a deceiver and the father of lies. And this brings us to Ephesians chapter 6. So I'm going to reread just the first couple of verses that Greg just read, and then we'll begin to unpack them. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, I want to point out that we're not going to talk today about the armor of God. We're going to, talk, we're going to walk through the armor piece by piece next week. What we're going to spend the majority of today talking about is the devil's schemes, what that means, what spiritual warfare is, what strategies the devil uses, and what that looks like in our everyday kind of life. Uh, And then he goes on to say this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We often think it is, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So uh, it's easy because of kind of the shocking nature of what he's saying here to lose sight of the initial command. He says, be strong in the Lord 
and in his mighty power. So what he's reminding us yet again, as he's done throughout the book of Ephesians, is he's reminding us that we serve a powerful God and that his power is available to us in the form of his son. And that his power is incomprehensible. There's no power like his power. And this is going to be super important because of what he has to say next. Here's what he says. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, I want you to notice something. We're told here to stand, not to storm. We're told to stand, not to chase. See, here's the assumption in this. The assumption is that the devil's going to come to you. Like, you don't have to seek him out or chase him down. He's going to show up. And when he does, the only thing you have to do in that attack is stand. You don't have to fight. You don't have to do anything else. Just hold your ground. That's all. And the remarkable thing is that God has given you the armor necessary to help you do that. And again, we're going to unpack that next week. But I want you to notice something. He says, he's told us twice already, I want you to put on the full armor of God. Important point here. This is not your armor. It's not my armor. It's God's armor. And this thing starts to go off the tracks when we start to think that this armor comes from us or that somehow, like, it's ours or, you know, it, that flows out of our strength. No, it's God's armor. And we'll talk specifically next week about how things go off the track when we start to assume it's our armor instead of God's. And so then he goes on. And, and he says, look, I want you to stand firm against the devil's scheme. Now, the devil is the commander-in-chief of the forces of darkness. And we're told very clearly here that he has a strategy. He has a scheme, and it involves you, and it involves me. Now, because Satan is a created being, and I'm not going to talk about um, how he was created and the circumstances of all that, but he's a created being, and because he is, he is not like God. In other words, God is omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipotent. There's nothing he can't do. God is omni, omnis, omnipresent, which means he can be multiple places at one time. But because Satan is a created being like you and I, he can't be. He's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, and he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. And so we see here that the way he carries things out is through an elaborate army of dark forces. So there's a, a structure that he works through. Uh, and it's really important to understand that. And though he is only a created being, he is a very, very clever, very, very wily adversary. And he's been a keen observer of humanity for thousands and thousands 
of years. And I know that when I start to talk about the devil, some of you think of, you know, a priest and a crucifix and somebody's head spinning around. But that is not at all what we're talking about today when we talk about spiritual warfare. And while it is true that spiritual warfare can sometimes look extreme like that, the reality is that spiritual warfare is something you and I engage in every single day and we may not even know it or be aware of it. But I'll tell you this, it's one of the reasons that some of you may have walked in so discouraged this morning. It's one of the reasons that some of you may have walked in so tired and worn out this morning and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But I know that some of you kind of doubt this or you, you think the devil is kind of a caricature. And so I want us to do some thinking about what evil looks like in our world. And, you know, maybe you don't believe in the devil, but, but you've got to have some position as to how evil came to be in our world. Because, you know, when Jesus says, look, hey, I came to, I, I came to or the devil came to maim, kill, and destroy, but I came that people might have life and have it to the full— I mean, the fact that there's a deceiver in our world, a leader of these spiritual forces of darkness that wants to kill, maim, and destroy, that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Uh, but, but on the other hand, maybe that explains some things. Maybe it's something that we need to factor in to the struggles that we have, that our children have, the, our struggles with things like temptation. Maybe it's something we need to factor into our struggles at home with our spouse. I mean, if spiritual warfare is a real thing, you know what that means for your marriage? It means that your marriage is not taking place on a romantic balcony. It means it's taking place on a spiritual battlefield. And we have to be mindful of that. And we all want our marriages to take place on that balcony, but that's not, you know, that's just not real. It's just not practical, right? Maybe it's something we need to factor in with, the, with that weird thing where all of a sudden you just feel off and you, you question your sanity and you're like, you know, am I the only one? And why am I so down today? And why am I struggling so much today? Or maybe when you ask deeper questions like, is there something wrong with me? You know, maybe there is a spiritual, unseen world which is led by an individual whose ultimate goal is your destruction. And that one of the weapons that he uses, and we'll talk more about this later, is deception. Deception. Let me give you some examples of how often our enemy deceives in the name of killing and destroying human beings. So for years, let's go back 20 years. Guys plan a plane attack where they're going to actually fly aircraft loaded with people into buildings filled with people. And these men are so deceived that they believe they're actually pleasing God as they do that. I mean, what's your explanation for that? Go back in history about 75 years a world leader places people in concentration camps, not because they've hurt him or wronged him, but simply because he's come to believe they are inferior to him. 
And he believes that the world will be a better place without them. So he begins to systematically torture them, experiment on them, starve them, and eventually kill them. And what is most mind-boggling is that groups of people actually carry this out and went along with this. What's your explanation? My explanation is there is a deceiver and his ultimate goal is murder. Look around the world today at something like genocide. You know, the extermination of a group of people simply because of what their heritage is or their background is or the color of their skin is. And I want you to think about the fact that whoever is doing that killing, that maiming, and that raping is doing so in the belief that they are making the world a better place to live. And somehow, in a dark and twisted way, it makes perfect sense to them. How does that happen? It happens, friends, because there is a deceiver. Think about something like child pornography. How do those two words even go together? Who comes up with this kind of stuff? Really? Or even worse, child prostitution. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, but, you know, but that seems okay to the people benefiting from that practice, right? And you know why? Because they have been deceived. You pick any of that and you dig down deep for an explanation without a devil, without a deceiver. Look, we ourselves, us in this room, we ourselves are descendants of people who built an entire enterprise on something called slavery. So here's what our descendants did. They took people, tore them from their families, killed them if they resisted, and in some cases uh, put them on a boat for months at a time where many of them would die. And they did this to entire families, you know, like grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, the kids, everybody, and then sold them and worked them for their own purposes. And what's even more deplorable than that is some of them tried to use the Bible to justify that practice. How does an entire generation of people do that? They do that because they are deceived. Think about something like suicide. Why would anyone ever consider taking their own life? It doesn't seem rational. It doesn't seem thinkable. And yet people can actually be deceived into thinking the world would be a better place without them. How do you explain that without a deceiver? Just in the last week, think about what another elementary school, another elementary school, a young man walks into that school fully armed and shoots small children and their teachers. Where does that come from? How does that even happen? What is your explanation for all that? The Bible would say the explanation is there is a deceiver. And we have to take that into account in the way that we live our lives. 
And under that deceiver is a, and we're told this very clearly here in Ephesians 6, under that, that, that leader is a highly organized system, a vast layered army that consists of generals, colonels, lieutenants, and so forth. And in fact, these layers are clearly laid out here. So the first level, you see, as you look at these verses, under Satan is a group of commanders called principalities or princes. Now, these are exceptionally powerful beings that carry vast responsibility to orchestrate the devil's schemes or strategies. So I think in my own perspective is that there are different levels of power and authority represented here with these princes being at the very top. You get great insight into these princes in an Old Testament book. In, in Daniel chapter 10, uh, there's an angelic messenger that is sent to deliver a message to Daniel, but he is detained by a powerful prince and his name was the Prince of Persia. And in fact, he was so powerful that this messenger can't get this message to Daniel for three weeks. He's three weeks late getting this message to Daniel. So he tells Daniel this and he explains that he was only able to arrive when he did because Michael the archangel engaged the Prince of Persia in battle. He went to battle against this prince. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically say this or teach this, but I want you to think about something. This could suggest that Satan has a prince over every nation, over every country that is responsible to push his agenda in that particular culture, in that particular country, in that particular grouping of people. Now, again, we're not told that explicitly, but we do know, at least from here, that um, that's a, there, there's a structure and that would make a ton of sense. Well, then the next level down in this structure are spirits that are called powers, powers. So they're probably a little more numerous, a little bit less powerful than the princes, but their name still suggests, obviously, that they have great, great power and great, great strength. Then the next level down that you see here in Ephesians 6 in this organized army of evil are the rulers of darkness. So they're still ruling, they're still commanding, probably much like a sergeant would in our army. So they, uh, these rulers of darkness have a vast final level of spirit beings called spiritual wickedness or wicked spirits. So, while Satan himself can only be at one, in one place at a time, he impacts our world. He, he, he institutes his strategy through a vast network of powerful spiritual beings. Now, I want to go from here to what does it look like? What does the devil's strategy look like in everyday life? 
And so this next verse is so instructive. It's so important as it relates to spiritual warfare because it tells us how and where spiritual warfare takes place. So let's kind of read it together. 2 Corinthians 10. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. In other words, he's saying, look, you can't spear a demon, right? You can't you can't shoot a, a, a wicked spirit. You have, to do, you, have to, you have to do something different than that. So he says, on the contrary, the weapons we fight with have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, listen, a stronghold is an, is an area of your life where you have given the devil undue authority or undue influence in your life most likely through a lie that you believe either about God or about the devil or about someone else or the person that you're married to whatever it might be so uh so here's the reality uh he goes on to say this then we demolish arguments And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, you could think truth of God here, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Now, um, so here's what I'm saying, that while uh, the, the vast majority of the time spiritual warfare, this verse tells us, is happening in our minds It's happening between our ears. In other words, the primary location of this spiritual battle is in our minds. So either we believe the lies that keep us in bondage, or we believe the truth of God which sets us free. So what I'm arguing is that spiritual warfare should be identified first and foremost as a battle for the mind. And that the battlefield for spiritual warfare occurs between your ears. So am I standing and acting on the truth of God's word or am I believing the lies of the enemy? Now remember, Jesus called the devil not just a liar and a deceiver. He also called him the father of lies. In fact, John tells us in the book of Revelation that he is the accuser of the brethren. He's always accusing us, always demeaning us, always trying to discourage us, always trying to defeat us through deception even through the truth he'll he'll stop at nothing to do those things this is why i think it's sometimes helpful to think of jesus as our defense attorney you know because every time satan tries to accuse jesus steps in and says hey i took the penalty for that that's already been paid for that's already been dealt with i already took that on it wouldn't be fair to punish me and them and god has already punished me do you see the idea here satan is the accuser jesus is the defense attorney now i want to give you some idea and i want you to latch on to some phrases to help in how this actually works on a daily basis and what it looks like so i want you to check out this video and just see if there are some sentences that flash across the screen that you can relate to
friends, that is exactly what spiritual warfare looks like every single day. Learning to replace the lies we're told by our enemy with the truth of God and the truth of God's Word. This is why we say so often around here, read your Bible, study your Bible, sit on your Bible, sleep with your Bible, parse your Bible, study your Bible, memorize your Bible. Because if you don't know the truth of God's words, you are defenseless against the lies of our enemy. You're going to believe that you'll never amount to anything. You're going to believe the world will be a better place without you. You're going to believe that God could never love you. Because that's what he wants to create and that's what he wants to produce in you. And we're told here that as we sift our thoughts... As we take them captive, you know, that um, as we sift them against the truth of God's word, uh, that sifting is capable of demolishing, you know, tearing down that stronghold, that place of influence or authority that Satan has gained in your heart or in your mind. Uh, really, really, this is a big deal. And, and, you know, we have these strongholds because of things like sin, doubt, unbelief, insecurity. And we're each subject to those. Every single one of us in this room, because of our insecurities, because of our uh, needs and, and whatever. So Satan comes in and he creates these, you know, these strongholds. And then I want you to note, too, his intention in all of this. And Peter talks about this quite well. He says this, be, be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, look, don't, don't sleep with the devil. Don't roll over and let the devil scratch your belly. He's not your friend. And see, here's the problem with the devil. He'll approach you as your friend. Hey, if you just did this thing, hey, if you had this relationship, some people might call it wrong, but if you do that, that's going to make you feel so good. Like, that's going to mask so much. You're going to do so much better with them than you are with them. See, he approaches us as a friend. Listen, the Bible says he is not your friend. He is here to kill and to steal and to, to destroy so, so when he approaches you as a friend, we need to step back from that. We need to live self-control. We need to be self-controlled, right? So that we're not giving the devil any undue influence or authority in our lives. And then there's a second thing he tells us to be here, not just self-controlled. He says, I want you to be alert. Now listen, we don't like this word. We don't do this word very well. Because being alert takes great effort and it is very, very hard work. Because here's the problem with being alert. The need to be alert never goes away. And so what do we do? Well, we get tired. We let our guard down. We become distracted. It's really, really hard to stay alert. See? We just have to remember that his intentions for you and I are harmful. That we, we're not to do anything that would uh, put us under his influence or within his reach, create that stronghold in our lives. Now, here's what I want to spend the last couple of minutes doing. 
I want to spend the last couple of minutes arguing against what, what's the enemy driving at as he's speaking into your mind? What's he shooting for? And you can recognize this in one of four ways, four words we're going to use to describe his activity in our minds. The first one is doubt, doubt. Now, with doubt, I'm not saying the devil's going to cause you to doubt that God exists. That's not the kind of doubt that I'm talking about. If you're a follower of Jesus, what I'm saying is this, that the devil will try to cast doubt on God's power and God's character. So he'll whisper things like this, well, God couldn't really love you. I mean, why would God allow you to go through this if he really loved you? See, that's the kind of doubt that we're talking about. Or, well, hey, now I know preachers say that God is all-powerful, but if God is all-powerful, how come he's not come and helped you through this situation in the way that you would have liked or the way that you would have hoped? His goal is to cast doubt on the character and the nature of God, not whether there is a God. And I'll tell you something else. His second goal is to create doubt between people to cause people to question one another's character to cause people to assume the worst in one another so he'll so maybe you have an encounter let's say this happens all the time listen here's what you need to know every single time you have an interaction with another human being you walk away from that interaction and you tell yourself a little story about the interaction that you just had sometimes those stories are charitable sometimes they they jump to assuming the worst but every time you have an interaction with another human being you tell yourself a story about that interaction so for example you bump into somebody in the lobby and uh you know they're a little curt or they seem preoccupied so you walk away and you say you know I've never liked them they don't care about me you know that kind of story or Maybe you're one of the pastors and you know that that person you just bumped into in the lobby is going through a really, really difficult time in their life right now. So maybe you could just walk away and go, yeah, they're just having a hard time. Man, I should really probably pray for them. Do you see the difference? Right? And here's what's so incredible and powerful is you have the power to begin to tell yourself a better story about other people so that the enemy doesn't come along and sow doubt between you. And we'll come to what, what flows from doubt in a minute. So doubt is huge in spiritual warfare. Uh, here's kind of the second thing, uh, deception. Deception. So we've, pretty, we've camped on this a lot, but I want to tell you, show you how this works. Satan, as the father of lies, specializes in this and here's what it looks like so all of us believe lies either about God about the devil about ourselves or about others we all do this is how Satan um, establishes a stronghold in our life so maybe you walked into church this morning and the lie you believed is well you know I have to go to church for God to love me or, well, you know, I have to try to do good to get God to love me. Friends, 
That is a lie from the pit of hell. You don't have to be good to get God to love you. The gospel has already told you that God already loves you and that God already sent his son to die in your place. He did that because he already loves you. You don't need to come to church or be a good person to get God to love you. He already does. And that is a truth that is poured out and spilled out in the gospel. And it's so easy to believe all kinds of spiritual lies like that, either about God or the devil or somebody else in a body. So he'll use deception. Now listen, the devil's not above using the truth in your life either. He'll, he'll point out your weaknesses. He'll point out struggles that are true of you. He'll use the truth if it works, but... He'd rather lie. He'd rather distort. The third uh, tool that he uses in our minds is just discouragement. Just discouragement. Listen, if you walked in here today discouraged and overwhelmed, I can tell you why. You have an enemy who wants you discouraged and overwhelmed. He wants you to feel cut off from God. He wants you to not be able to access God's power to rise above. He wants you to feel like you have to live your entire life isolated and alienated from God and from God's people. So he'll things, say things like this, nobody could ever love you. No one loves you. Or God could never love you. God could, you did that. God could never forgive you for that. See, discouragement. And then finally, and this one's really, really important, he'll use division. Division. You know, we said a few minutes ago that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. When a, when a pride of lions is going to attack its prey, what does it do? When it, when it attacks a herd, what's the tactic of a pride of lions? Come on. Yeah, to separate, right? To separate from the herd, to get that, uh, that prey off all by itself. Friends, this is exactly what our enemy, the devil, does. He, if he can separate the body of Christ, if he can separate br brother and brother, if he can cause division and disunity between a brother and a sister, he revels in that because it, it invites him to pray, it invites him to feed, it invites him to feast. So in John 17, Jesus knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to die. He knows that the weight of the sin of the world is going to be placed on his shoulders. He knows his time is short. But do you know what Jesus prays most about in John 17? Even though he knows all of that, he prays for our unity, yours and mine. He prays for the unity of Shelbyville Community Church. No, that's, that's too small. He prays for the unity of brothers and sisters all over the world. 
And he prays that they would have the kind of unity that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have known since the beginning of time. That's the kind of unity that he prays for. Now, here's why I say this. It is sin to allow an opinion to separate you from another brother or sister in Christ. So let me give you an example of how I think that the prince that's over the United States of America works. I think the prince that's over the United States of America tries to polarize people through politics. I think he tries to get followers of Jesus to care more about whether they're Democrats or Republicans or Independents or whatever than that they're followers of Jesus. I think he tries to convince them it's more important to put that hat on than to wear their brother or sister in Christ hat. I think that the prince of the United States of America used a global pandemic to create incredible dissension and division in the body of Christ. And I think it's inexcusable for Christians to allow an opinion. Man, have an opinion. Study up. Read up. But don't you let your opinion divide you from another brother or sister in Christ Jesus. You're only being a pawn of the enemy when you do that. And you're fighting against the very prayers of the Savior that bled and died for you. See, the enemy knows that if he can create division, that it's over, we're done. And you know why he knows that? Because of Jesus' central overarching, the one command that every follower of Jesus is supposed to hold most dear to their heart. When Jesus was going to start a new covenant with his people, right? He said, I'm going to give you a new command, love one another. That wasn't what made it new, by the way. That wasn't a new command. He, what made it new is he said, I want you to love one another the way that I love you. In other words, this is a ratchet up the bar. What is happening? That's so crazy. See, anyway, are we, are we back? Okay, thanks. I'm, I'm on again. Anyway, uh, where was I? What was I even talking about? Oh, yeah, love one another. Pretty important, right? Yeah. So, when, listen, when we're disunified, we're not loving one another well. I mean, listen, this tugs at the foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we have to get this right. I think one of the great secrets of life is learning to love people who disagree with you. Learning to love people who don't think like you. This is what makes marriage counseling so prevalent. I mean, right? Because we, I guess, get this, I married somebody who doesn't think like me. Go figure. I mean, like, I was 10 years in before I even realized she didn't think like me. division and he will just go after it so here's what I want to do so again listen if you're here today and you don't come back next week to hear the spiritual warfare piece uh you're 
you're going to be defenseless. You're just going to continue to be defenseless to the attacks of the enemy. You have to learn how to put on the full armor of God. So please come back next week, you know, for that talk. It's really important as you think about spiritual warfare. But here's just what I want to do. Um, so all right, I'm going to ask everybody in the room to stand up. Now, in a minute, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you because um, some of you are here, and maybe there's just more division in your life, more tearing of relationships than you can, than you can take. Maybe you're here today and you're completely overwhelmed and discouraged. Maybe you're here today and you're just torn with doubt about God or another brother or another sister. I don't know how the enemy is attacking you today, but I can guarantee you that if you identify as a follower of Jesus, and even if you don't, 100% of us are under spiritual attack. So now, if you're here today, and maybe the devil took the day off in your life the last week, or the week off, or the month off, you can feel free. If you don't feel you need this prayer, you can go ahead and sit down. Yeah, I didn't think so. So I'm going to pray for you, and then, listen, at the end of our service, we're going to take communion together here in a moment, but we're going to have prayer warriors, people who are trained in praying with you against spiritual warfare. So if you feel like you need more, like, you know, it's just far heavier than you could have imagined, far more difficult than you could have ever anticipated. We want to invite you to come forward for prayer at the end of our services. And, and we'll stay as long as we need to to accommodate you. Deal? All right. Awesome. So, yeah, let me just pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that the men and the women, the teenagers, the children in this room, I pray, God, that they would be strong in you and in your mighty power. God, I pray that they would know you in the days to come as their rock, as their refuge, as their shield, as their portion, as their deliverer. God, I pray that you would protect them from the power of the evil one and the spiritual forces of darkness. I pray that you would shield them from his attacks. I pray that you would give them supernatural wisdom and insight into the strategies and schemes of the devil. I pray that the next time that voice whispers into their mind and tells them that they're not worthy or worthwhile, that they would recognize his voice, Lord Jesus, that you would give them a supernatural ability to recognize that voice and to sift it via the truth of the Word of God. God, I pray for the men and women in this room this week that they would be supernaturally gifted to sift thoughts, to recognize the stories that they're telling themselves about the interactions that they have all week long. Help them be aware. Help them be more charitable in the stories they tell themselves about other people. 
God, I pray that you would do a mighty work. I pray that you would uphold these men and women, some of them so exhausted, some of them so overwhelmed, some of them so overcome. God, would you uphold them with your righteous right hand? Would you in this very moment, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you wrap your arms of love around these men and women and help them to supernaturally know and feel and discern your love? Help them not just know them because you showed them in Jesus or told them in your word. Help them to know your word, your love supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives and moves and breathes in them. Lord, one of the words that's used in your word, you call yourself the God of all comfort. God, would you help these men and women to know you as that God this week? God, whatever they may need, whatever they may struggle with, whatever warfare they may be engaged, would you comfort them in that? Would you speak a hopeful word, Lord Jesus, over them and to them by your Spirit, again, who lives and moves and breathes within? And so, God, uh, we are grateful that, um, that we don't fight this battle alone, that we can be strong in you, and in your mighty power, and that you've given us the armor of God so that we can stand firm against the devil's schemes. God, for these men and women, I pray this week that they would be that generation that would stand and stand firmly. And I ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You guys can all take a seat. So listen, we're going to take communion together, and as we do that, we're going to do it a little differently uh, than we have in the past. So you can see we have stations here at the front and at the back. We're going to invite you to come, and we will give you the elements. We'll give you the bread. We'll give you the, uh, the juice. We're going to invite you to then take that bread and that, that juice back to your seat and hold on to it. Don't take it. We're going to worship for a few minutes, and then I'm going to come back up, and I will prompt you in um, what, what you're going to do with the bread and the cup, okay? So let me pray for us, and then we'll open this up for you to, yeah, take those back to your seat. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, rem we want to remember well together your body offered up for us. We want to remember well that your blood, your blood was shed for us. And so, God, as we uh, together as a family eat the bread and take drink from the cup, God, would you just help us remember you well today, we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. And so now come and receive. The altar is open.